The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. With expertise in more than 60 categories of collecting, its specialists will connect you with your passion. Find what defines you at bonhams.com. Hello and welcome to the Art Newspaper Podcast. I'm Ben Luke. This week we focus on African art, with five people involved in different ways with creating, showing, selling and collecting work from the African continent. All five are based in London, where next week, as the Freeze Art Fair opens, so too does the 154 Contemporary African Art Fair. I talked to Turia El Glawi, the daughter of the Moroccan artist Hassan El Glawi. Turia launched the 154 Fair in London in 2013. I'm also joined by Toby Clark of the Vigo Gallery, one of the galleries at this year's fair, and speak to Larry Achampong, the British Ghanaian artist doing a special project at 154. I visit the curator Elvira Jangani Osse, who's been appointed as director of London's Showroom Gallery, and speak to Giles Pepia, the director of modern and contemporary African art at Bonhams, about the forthcoming Africa Now auction. First, to the 154 Art Fair. This year is its sixth edition in London, set as ever in the historic Somerset House on the banks of the Thames. It bills itself as the leading international art fair dedicated to contemporary art from Africa and its diaspora, and has annual fairs in New York and Marrakesh as well as in London. The fair was founded by Turia El Glawi, and Turia is with me now. Uh, Turia, I wonder if you could start by just talking a little bit about your background, because your father was an artist. Yes, so I grew up in an artist uh, home, you know. So my father was uh, quite an established artist in Morocco. Um, and uh, it was quite a different, probably, you know, up raising than most of, most of uh, people I knew in Morocco, at least. Um, so that gave me, I guess, my first art, uh, you know, education when I was really young. And, uh, you know, he kind of encouraged us to discover artists and be very excited about, you know, anything that was being creative around us. Is there any connection between that and staging an art fair in the sense that did you perceive that that um, there was not a sort of forum for the presentation of uh, Moroccan artists or African artists more widely? Well, it definitely helped because I was working in putting, you know, a catalogue raisonné for his work. And I kind of understood by doing that, uh, while I had a completely different professional life, that the international visibility was extremely important for his work. And this is why he was able to be so successful in Morocco. Um, and then for my professional life, I had a chance to go a lot to Africa for work. And uh, because, you know, having a father as an artist, it was kind of my reference into trying to discover what was going on into the local art art scenes when I was stuck for weekends or for holidays there. And I think that maybe my curiosity about trying to, you know, discover African artists while I was in those African countries is partly thanks to him. But then I feel like, you know, it's also the idea of like having seen all those wonderful artists, you know, that honestly blown my mind away. But when I was coming back to Europe or to the US, there was absolutely no trace of what I had just seen in Africa. And I think it's a mixture of both. I was also a bit fed up of what I was doing. You know, like I think there's all <laughs> different variables that come along. But like, I think that, you know, one of the major, you know, I think enlightenment I had was that those artists did not get the visibility they deserve. And it's they were not crossing over, you know, the geographical boundaries. And I thought that was important. And I feel that I knew I could do this, you know, as a platform and that was what was needed for them to get you know some kind of international recognition and play into the you know the international art spheres did was there were there certain conditions that had started to emerge that made you think it would be a success was there a sense in which there was there was more 
international interest in African art developing or what, what, what was it? What was the sign that told you that you felt that this could be a success? So to be honest, I started working on the fair in 2000 and end of 2011, 2012, you know, and at that time, I remember that I was sure that if I was talking around, you know, to the people in the art world here about my project, that they would have told me that that platform existed somewhere. You know, I was quite surprised that it didn't. I thought there would be a version of it somewhere or like a trial at least and it didn't work out, etc. But um, I did not see this coming, but it's true that it, starting in 2012, you know, trying to search, you know, a bit the market and understanding it a bit more from a London perspective, I got to understand that the Tate was planning, you know, to have a Tate Acquisition Committee and their whole program. Um, and then, you know, there was one or two major exhibition that was going around, you know, in Europe, etc. But it, the, those events were so rare at the time that, you know, it kind of made me, you know, feel relieved to know that the Tate was doing something because obviously when they focus on obviously a region, we've seen it in the past with Latin America, you know, it kind of like sets, you know, some kind of like positiveness into the, the discovery of a particular region, you know, so that was a very good news indeed. And that followed up with two, you know, solo shows at the Tate of two African artists the same year as I was doing the fair. So let's say that all those events really just helped, you know, 154 to have a great successful year. The key to 154, in, in a sense, is in its in its name, in the sense that you, uh, I mean, I think we'll touch quite a lot on this podcast on Africa being a continent of 54 countries. And therefore, to talk about African art is problematic in all sorts of ways. But still, in, in, in a sense, what, by calling it 154, what you're saying is you want it to represent the diversity of African art. Of course. And I think this is very important because um, I never, you know, intended or had, you know, the, I guess, the, 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 probably the vanity of thinking, you know, that I could represent, you know, Africa at 154. You know, I mean, my idea was really providing a platform for artists coming from the continent and the diaspora and giving them a voice, giving them visibility and trying to showcase the best, you know, that I could, uh, this immense, you know, continent and uh, uh, being able to call it one for the continent, 54 for the countries it represent was a good way of, you know, share, sharing the, the, the I guess, the, the, the diversity and the multiplicity of artists that we could see at 154, but we never were able to showcase the whole continent since we've started you know it's obviously not something yet that we can do because there's so much to discover there's so much artists that we didn't have the yet the possibility to to share to share with the the audience here can you tell me a bit about the sort of relative richness of different regions in africa and uh, are you able to represent certain regions in much greater depth than others? Yes, of course, because to be honest, there are some uh, regions that are much more develop, developed, you know, from an artistic scene point of view than others. So, you know, South Africa has been leading the way for quite a long time. Uh, so if you go to South Africa, you know, you have like this whole ecosystem of galleries, of auction houses, of like, they have a huge collector base. So they are in a league of their own, you know, but, you know, they have also been able to be part of the international market much more than the rest of Africa. And then, you know, you obviously, you know, go to countries like North, in North Morocco, like Tunisia, Morocco also that have, you know, obviously um, had quite an interesting, you know, art scene and for a long period of time and developed their own collector base. And then you have the new up and coming, you know, countries like Nigeria, like Ghana, you know, who have seen, you know, in the past five years, an immense, you know, boom, you know, when it comes to artistic galleries opening and, uh, and uh, auction houses 
house starting, I think, Lagos had its first auction house in 2007, and it really helped, you know, stabilize the market as well. So I think, uh, you know, those regions, I'll say, are where we've seen the most of things happening in the past six years. But, you know, for example, like the last two years, you know, we had the new galleries in Addis Abeba, for example, and all change, you know, the perspective of what we're seeing in Addis Abeba before, because they start participating in, you know, international art fairs, bringing their artists, you know, in this group of international fairs as well. And that, you know, gives people, you know, whole different angle and view on, you know, art from Ethiopia that you never seen before. And it's a, it's a bit the same, you know, story of, you know, for example, Ghana, you know, you have a gallery that started opening three, two, two years ago now and have done great things and like showcasing, you know, art from Ghana, you know, all over, you know, Europe and the US and that, you know, changed, you know, how people even heard about Ghana before because they didn't really see any artists from Ghana in international art fairs. And are you able as an, an institution, as an organisation to sort of actually develop, help develop those scenes? Are you, in a way, are you a, a sort of a middle person as opposed to a sort of direct sort of creative agent, if you like? Well, I believe and I want to think that we're able, you know, to uh, to drive the growth of, uh, you know, what's happening in Africa. So we have helped in the past several galleries, you know, to come to 154 and to showcase, you know, their work, um, either by giving them spaces or, you know, trying to help them find grants to come to 154, guide them through the process or, you know, so for us, it's extremely important that we can showcase galleries that never been seen in the in uh, in Europe or in the US before. Um, I think what we've done and we're doing more and more and it always depends on the budget we have but also supporting activities on the continent because I think it's extremely important and it helps, you know, develop their own local collector base which is quite important, you know, for the future uh, of what we do. And uh, so in the past, you know, we were able either to support directly, locally, you know, different biennales. So, you know, they have an amazing biennale in Bamako that, you know, has been uh, an ongoing, you know, biennale with amazing work, you know, that we all love, you know, but, you know, they always like all of us need sponsors and things. And I think it's extremely important because they are bringing us new, you know, artists that we have never seen before that, you know, will be the artists will present at 154 eventually or at 154 itself in London or in New York. We often gave spaces to events, you know, that were non-commercial, but that were happening in Africa. So one year, for example, in London, we had, you know, the photo festival of Addis Abeba and we asked, we gave them a space, you know, to showcase the highlight of of what was happening in Ethiopia. We did a project with the Biennale of Dakar as well in New York because a lot of people didn't know about the Biennale of Dakar in the US and we thought it was quite important to have this exchange as the two events take place at the same time, you know, in New York and in Dakar and to have this exchange between the two events. Um, tell me about the collectors because obviously you have three fairs you in, in Morocco, New York and London. Do you see different people? Are you seeing um, a sort of a community developing that attend all three? What, what, tell me about the collector base. So we have, a, I think, a very uh, loyal collector base. Uh, it is not the same, probably, collector base than most of the most of the fair. Our collector base is also, you know, made of like very young collectors because obviously, you know, the art we are also selling is for a lot of uh, different pockets. You know, it's right, not, yeah. uh, you know, what you would see, uh, um, you know, at 
Freeze or at Basel, but like we're able to engage, you know, younger collector base as well. Um, I think that depending on where the fair is, you know, in London, they will have this very international European, you know, collector base who's not only there for us, but is also there for Freeze, you know, at the same time. Um, and in New York, for some reason, you know, that was a bit unexpected. We reached out to to be able to 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 have as a collector base also African American collectors, um, so those those are a collector base that we only reach in New York, and it's quite a, it's quite a nice you know um, it, it it nicely complete you know our collector base you know so it's not just international it's like we have the African Americans you know collector base there we also are able to showcase more of the African American diaspora in New York you know with the with the fair, and in Marrakesh you know I think it's just been very different because it's obviously a French-speaking country compared to New York and to, you know, London. So we didn't think about that factor playing into our favor as well. So we were able to reach out to a more, much more Belgium, French, you know, Afri- uh, French-speaking African collectors, you know, which we don't automatically get in London or in New York. Elsewhere in, in this podcast, I've spoken to um, Giles Pepier from uh, Bonham's Auction House. And what's interesting is that he says that from, from, from their point of view, there's a sort of, um, there's an, uh, um, a conservatism of medium, if not of of material, of um, artistic material within the stuff that they are selling at auction. At one fifty four, do you feel that you are able to stretch the kind of work that you're showing absolutely into the the area of the avant garde, even though, of course, it is a selling fair? Well. I, I do believe that, you know, I do believe that, you know, if it's not with the galleries themselves who might be more conservative and more, you know, trying to sell, you know, during the fairs, because obviously they have to make a return. And this is also why they are there for. Um, but our special project, for example, the very ambitious project we're doing with Toby uh, and Ibrahim Salhi, you know, in the courtyard um, are, you know, sculptures that, you know, are quite, I'll say, um, uh, ambitious. And it's 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 very of Toby to take it on. We have an amazing, you know, foundation supporting this project as well. But uh, I think it's the first time the artists and not only Ibrahim al-Sahi, but in the past, we had other artists who were able to work in, on such a scale, you know, like it's an immense sculpture and not everybody can pull it off and like, you know, even sell it, you know, like, uh, so I know, for example, the year before we had a fantastic uh, installation by Pascal Martin Tayou, but it was an ephemer installation, you know, it didn't stay, uh, but it still was an amazing, you know, project to do uh, the immersion exhibition of uh, Larry Ashipong, you know, at 154 this year is also the this uh, crazy project of uh, uh, of uh, you know recreating um, a living room, you know, uh, and he'll tell you more about it. But uh, I think this is really you know avant garde. This is not definitely something that is commercial, you know, in any kind of way. And finally, you started one fifty four because you wanted greater visibility for artists from across the African continent. You've now done ten fairs across the three countries. Do you think you've made steps in that direction? Is there greater visibility today? And and I guess how far have, have we got to come? 
I since 2013, I would definitely see you know that we have increased the visibility. I love to think that we had a huge role in driving the growth. You know, I think there's definitely a growth that is I think more confident and more uh, more present. You know, like uh, you can definitely uh, discover African arts. You know, in now international art fairs where the galleries who were completely unknown are now known. You know, to international art fairs and they start getting invited. So the number is still small and still quite imbalanced, but there's still a lot of progress, you know, that uh, we have accomplished in six years. Um, what is very important and what we're working for, for example, is really that we have this constant, you know, collector base and it's not, you know, uh, uh, temporary growth, but rather constant growth. And this is where, you know, we 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 are, uh, you know, working with our collector base and like ma- making sure that, you know, this visibility or this momentum where we are getting, you know, is something that is uh, uh, much more than a, a trend, you know, that this is something that we will see growing and growing. And I mean, in my opinion, we really just touched, you know, the top of the iceberg. Turia, thank you very much. You're welcome. <laughs> the 154 Fair is at Somerset House from the 4th to the 7th of October. Now, the Spanish-born curator Elvira Jangani Osse has just started as the director of London's showroom gallery, having recently been a curator at Creative Time in the US. Before that, she was a curator of international art at Tate Modern, with a special focus on modern and contemporary African art. She was appointed at a key moment, when the Tate was seeking for the first time to represent art from the African continent in depth. She's worked for many years with African artists, curating shows including the Lubumbashi Biennial in the Democratic Republic of the Congo and the Salon Urban de Douala in Cameroon. I caught up with Elvira at the showroom to talk about her work. Elvira, you've got a long history of curating exhibitions of contemporary and modern African art. Can you tell me about when you started curating those shows? What kind of presence did African art have globally? And was there a need to curate shows that were somehow a corrective? Um, Well... My first show involving African artists was uh, in Las Palmas, the Gran Canaria, in the Centro Atlantico de Arte Moderno, uh, where um, I co-curated with Gavin Gobo, Kwesi Gule, and Tracy Mirinik a show called Olvida Quien Soy, Erase Me From Who I Am. And one of the key things for me at the time, uh, in a museum that traditionally uh, was working for 15 years, trying to bring art from... Africa, America, and Europe together was to think about what that kind of Africanness or blackness will mean in that particular context. We're talking about Spain, we're talking about the uh, uh, 2000, a decade after a migratory wave that, bring, uh, many, that brought many um, African communities to Canary Island and to the south of Spain, and of course um, to Europe in that respect. And it was to think about what that Africanness, what blackness mean in that context. Um, as I said, traditionally, the museum had presented before African art, so it wasn't something new to them. In fact, um, uh, they were particularly keen to continue a legacy that includes exhibitions such as Africa Today and the Time of Africa, and the way curated by uh, Simon Yami. Uh, uh, so uh, it raised me from who I am, came in a moment where uh, South African artists for, of a particular generation, at the time they were... Um, uh, in their late 20s, early 30s, 
were claiming their voice in a context that was uh, where perhaps the presence of a resistant art or art that was dealing with the apartheid was abundant and they wanted to have a voice that was different from that generation. And in fact, this was the first generation of our students coming out of university in some of the cases, uh, people like uh, Nicolas Lobo or Nandi Fantambo, uh, Zanele Muholi. No? And at the time, they wanted to to think about the Tracy Rose, of course, mm. they wanted to think about their subjectivity, who they were, in a different way. They wanted to escape an imposed um, idea of what Africa in that context meant, uh, or what South Africa uh, in that context meant. And 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 for them, that was extremely crucial. So to me, it was uh, sort of like we create a dialogue, a curatorial and artistic, that were presenting a different face of that. Uh, South Africanness, if you want, that help us to to question or to put under question uh, some of the um, givens about what an African artist should represent, what an African artist should um, produce. Uh, how, so, where, where the where, which were the confines in which their project could operate? And, and has that been a strain in a lot of your curating of, of shows, both in Africa and of, of African artists since, would you say? Yes. I mean, uh, in fact, part of that uh, sort of uh, trying to subvert in the narrative of the Western institutions around ideas on Africanness was uh, what I brought to Tate, uh, how... Um, one is dealing with the Western canon and institution. How, how can one overcome it? How can one challenge it? Uh, one had to remember that uh, even if you have an international art collection, there are many el- moments of uh, certain um, art history episodes that are not represented. And mm. some shows, such as uh, Ibrahim al Salahi's exhibition or Meshagaba Museum of Contemporary Art, bring uh, the possibility not only to um, to, to take to London or to bring to London um, these masterpieces but also to question the context in which they are going to be displayed and against the, what they are going to be displayed no? against that history uh, that was as you were saying no? uh, um, there is not only an, an, an exercise of correction or reinscription it's an exercise of challenging the framework considering history anew you don't have you you immerse this um, this artist in this narrative within a, a given context in order to challenge it, in order to rethink it, in order to add complexity to his narrative. I suppose the risk for any institution that has a Eurocentric, America-centric collection then beginning to collect in Africa is that it just reinforces a sort of uh, colonial kind of posture so did you sense from the tape that they were very much wanting concerned about that or in any or, or wanting to make sure that they avoided that trap i mean they they needed the the, the thing that they uh, the reason to invite curators that had that expertise to me signal their interest to overcome those issues right um it is fundamental do you want to create an international collection? And obviously there is a lot of pressure to all these newcomer works that had to signify something greater in order to be part of that collection, that had to bring something transformative to the collection that already exists. There is a lot of pressure around that. And sometimes to me it was more a question of how to make um, relevance internationally something that was fundamental locally, 
right? So that 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 thing without um, so without that, it's very difficult to to think about transforming a collection, uh, like in the case of the the, the the Tate, not necessarily only through Africa, but to many other regions that come. And overcoming the colonial um, aspect can only happen if you then give something back. So at the time, I ran a program called Across the Board, because uh, that intended to produce other initiatives in Africa. With the projects, conversations, symposiums, we attended and visited artists uh, and bring artists to the Tate platform in a way, even sometimes in London, but mostly elsewhere. And I believe and I hope uh, also sort of invading other areas of the organization and the institution in order to bring that expertise and intelligentsia uh, overall. No? But the idea, you know, we, we spent time in Kumasi, in Accra, in Ghana. Uh, we we went to Lagos. We uh, were part of a uh, Cameroonian um, um, the um, salon uh, salon van de Douala uh, that um, Dualar the the organization um, produces every three years. So all those bring that expertise, bring that um, cross pollination, if you want, to Tate was for me very important. Was part of what what that I intended to do within the rooms of the galleries, right? Like, was a great part of that, too. I suppose one of the crucial things is you have to allow that sort of... the idiosyncrasies of individual community, artistic communities. And, and in fact, of course, we haven't yet said that there's 54 countries in Africa and so yeah, they're going to be... Yes, know, yes. That, you know, there are many art worlds in Africa. Yes, yes. So, and I suppose one of the key things is if you have a collection like the Tate, and Tate definitely does have straight jackets even in the context of British art which is by far its biggest collection mm -hmm. you know there are certain types of British artists that don't make it into yeah. the Tate collection yes. Yes. so in a way it's, it's a, I guess it must have been slightly dizzying bringing <laughs> taking on that role in, in the sense of you know where do you begin how do you how do you how do you step forward in in so many different directions I think you're right but also one has to remember or at least from my perspective temporary experiences as as fundamental as permanent uh, collections right uh, exhibitions they are part of the history of institutions and you want that to be also part of the memory of the words that are present there um, I know that what we did these few years of the support of uh, Garanti Trust Bank at the Tate, of the initial uh, years of the Com uh, African Acquisitions Committee, all those years had changed the way that Tate collect in relation not only to Africa but other regions, creating narrative um, within the, the, the institution that also helped to enhance previous non uh, um, uh, uh, Art, artistic episode. No? If you look at um, the River Son of Childhood Dream by uh, Ibrahim al Salahi, he, he changed completely the way that poetry and dream is presented in the second floor of the tale. No? The fact that being in conversation with, you know, German Ritter, Pablo Picasso, it always changed the way we see our history. And now, but imagine when he produced that work in the 60s, he was in New York. Imagine that MoMA would have uh, bought that, that work then. How I mean, of course, the life of Al Salahi will have been completely different, uh, or maybe not. Uh, but our view of history will have been, because we will have incorporated 
a character that help us to understand not only what African art meant, but also what it meant for artists at that time, modernist artists that were coming back from Europe to their own regions, tried to engage with an aesthetic that somehow was erased of their uh, of their path while they were students uh, in art school here, or that was somehow also sort of put in dialogue with uh, with um, um, uh, a, a history that you and I, as a historian, uh, have also grown up on. No? And all of a the sudden they, they were exposed to something else, which was like regular life, everydayness, and, and that challenged the way they thought about what they had learned. So they had to go through that process of unlearning in order to engage with this aesthetic and reinvent themselves anew. All that will have come in the 60s. Now it's available in the two South things, which is amazing for everybody to see. But I think that that is one uh, critical issue that um, that had changed the way that uh, that Tate presents um, this this region, as you said. Mm, I always say one is African, but then it's also there are 54 ways of being African, but also there are. I don't know, trillions of thousands of million people, uh, uh, and everybody feels and can be represented an African that is different. You know? Elvira, thank you so much. Thank you. Women on Aeroplanes, a show exploring women's largely unacknowledged role in pan-Africanism and the social-political movements that led to post-colonial nation-states in Africa, is at the showroom from the 3rd of October to the 26th of January next year. Now, one of the galleries showing at this year's 154 Fair is the Vigo Gallery, which shows artists of diverse nationality, but has a particular interest in the African diaspora and African-American artists. The gallery has a show of the Sudanese artist Ibrahim El Salahi in London at the moment, and will show a major sculpture by him at the fair. Toby Clark from the gallery is with me now. Toby, I'd like to talk to you about Ibrahim El Salahi because you've been representing him now for, is it about five years? Yeah, since 2013. Yeah, so, so can you tell me a bit about um, on the one hand, taking him on at a moment when his international stock was kind of rising in amongst museums and things like that, and also what it means to represent him and 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 how he how how you can show his work in its in its full diversity in a way that it, it perhaps hadn't been able to be shown before that. Well, um, you know, I, I was incredibly lucky to come across Ibrahim at the time I did. It was very fortuitous. I'd um, I'd actually donated a, a work to the tape myself uh, by an artist called Leonardo Drew, an African-American artist. And as part of that, it, it then led on to me taking the, um, the Tate curators, uh, Francis Morris, to the family three times in Belgium. And on one of those journeys, I remember asking Francis Morris who she was most excited about coming out, what show, and she said, Ibrahim El Salahi. And she showed me on her iPad, and I was just immediately transfixed. And to be honest, thought he was way out of my league but um I went to his show and I was going to be introduced to him and you know she said you know you should meet him I think you you two would would get on a lot um and so I went along and it was it was packed it was very exciting and I sort of took it all in and went up to him and uh introduced myself and he just said god bless you thank you very much and I walked away and mm-hmm. I thought what a sweet man you know <laughs> and I th- and uh Two weeks later, I got a call from his wife saying that um, Elvira, who was at the Tate, had suggested that, you know, she thought I was a good person for them to to meet with. And um, it was incredibly uh, kind of them to do that because actually we we 
we hit it off perfectly and and actually we've got a, one of the most you know rewarding uh, relationships that you can have with an artist and their their entire family really um of sort of trust but also excitement but also we both consider i mean it's very immodest of me to say that he also does with us but um it was the most amazing opportunity to have this hero of african art this 20th century modernist genius who for so many years would not like selling his work um i can sort of go into that sort of later but he um a lot of his work appears to him later on after he's done it so it's like a stream of consciousness so he he was notorious for not letting his wife in his studio for 20 years and for keeping many of his most important works all up until the point which probably relates to what we're going to talk about today that he um he had the Tate show first african artist of of um of african birth to have a, a solo retrospective but to to be able to um that moment of recognition and the fact that he'd shown at Sharjah just before and in, in Doha as well really made him feel like now it was worth selling his work. Um, so, yeah, that was our, our first um, foray and I was incredibly lucky and, um, and continue to be incredibly lucky. He's one of those people, one in, one in a million, where you, you really feel like he's not only warm uh, and approachable, but he's, he's, a, he's a hero of, of the history of art. And indeed such a hero that there's this sort of talismanic presence right now at the Museum of Modern Art in New York. Can you tell us more about that? Absolutely. Well, um, when uh, Trump came into power, uh, a lot of the museums in the cultural world in uh, in America made a protest by hanging works by uh, people who would not now be allowed into the country or who would find it difficult. So it, despite Ibrahim having been invited on so many occasions to go since that time, he hasn't because he's not willing to be, in, you know, investigated and interrogated over over at the age of 88. And it's, it's America's loss, really. Um, but what was wonderful about MoMA, who'd been incredible um, support to him, uh, in fact, they just bought his masterpiece very recently and have just published a book um, on his prison diary. But uh, at the moment, he's hanging and has done for the last two years in a room full of Picassos, including Les Demoiselles d'Avignon, probably the most famous uh, painting in the world, uh, with his painting The Mosque. And that was bought in 1965 when he met Alfred Barr for the first time and has been pretty much not on display for most of the time since. It was in it was in a, a, a one show for sure um, in the 60s. But um, it was just fantastic. Ibrahim joked that he should write to Donald Trump and say thank you so much for for highlighting me. <laughs> um, but anyway, yeah. So that's that's wonderful. And you know, for me, it's a it's a thing of great pride that he's he's hanging in MoMA. He's hanging in the Tate. He was next to Picasso, three dancers for several years, and now he's been rehung in another room um, with Wilfredo Lamb and other greats. The the Guggenheim Abu Dhabi um, have, are also hanging one of his uh, very important 60s works, a very rare one, um, in, in, in the Louvre. It's part of a Guggenheim collection, and it's hanging within the Louvre no, Abu Dhabi right. at the moment. So basically, he's incredibly well represented in museums around the world, and that is shown in, in, the, in the cells that we make of his. Um, over half of the paintings that we sell are to museums, which has been still, uh, you know, it's an incredible record, really. And this year, we've probably sold several million pounds worth of his work to, to, to museums around the world. Um, so, so you can see very visibly something which we've been told is happening that 
museums are expanding their definition of modernism and then Ibrahim is now very much part of a core canon of international modernists. Absolutely. As, as I understand it, and as uh, she is, um, you know, several curators from the Tater, you know, initially um, explained to me very patiently and kindly um, that, you know, we have a very Eurocentric and Americentric uh, sense of modernism and have done, you know, in collecting practices and museums for a very long time. And therefore, the, uh, the, the intelligent curators are trying to readdress this balance by bringing people from the periphery, which are seen as actually where a lot of the change within modernism has been instigated much more into the into the limelight and and giving us a, a more whole view of modernism um, so it's for for us it's um for ibrahim he's he's a sort of perfect example of this because being Sudanese he's both african and arabic uh, he has a you know a dual identity and therefore appeals across many cultures and many people can understand them find a way in to either western modernism or into arabic and african modernism through him because he he's not um he hasn't operated within a vacuum you know he came to london he won a scholarship he went to the slade uh he visited the british museum a lot of the calligraphic works he saw were when he was you know a young man at the british museum and then he won a rockefeller grant to uh to new york and you know he met so many you know fabulous sort of people from Alfred Barr through to you know the interesting sort of um, revolutionary artists of the time and then he traveled through South America he's he's you know he's so so well traveled and also he's he's pan-american a pan-african in that he's you know he was there right at the beginning in 1961 with the Mabari Artists and Writers Club and his was the first Uli Bayer exhibition of his drawings is is that sense of um, expanding modernisms reflected in, in private collecting? Do you think? I think so, but you know, like a lot of the art world, a lot of people follow where they're they're introduced by the museums or by people who are tastemakers or people who they they trust. And so, you know, really, for for me, the you know, I had a I had a treasure trove with with Ibrahim uh, and. I, I was able to very calmly think about how he was presented and thinking, you know, about how each different body of work could be best presented for people to understand the whole. Because, you know, going to his Tate show is a fantastic experience, but you're almost overwhelmed because there's so many different styles, seemingly. And it's only once once you get to know his work that you see all the threads that go in between it, very much linked to the man as 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 a person. And it tends to be the more sophisticated collectors who are taking that view of what is important in art history so it's not it's not a sort of speculative bubble and it's helped really very much by the fact that it's so many museums by and that the work is so rare toby thank you very much thank you very much cheers The exhibition by his Will We Teach Birds How to Fly, Ibrahim El Salahi in black and white, is at the Vigo Gallery until the 26th of October, and you can see Ibrahim El Salahi's tree sculpture in the courtyard of Somerset House at the 154 Fair. We're back with more interviews after this. The Taiwanese master Richard Lin is one of the leading artists of the 20th century, revered in his native country and across Asia. But, says Bonham's global head of post-war and contemporary art Ralph Taylor, Lin should be better known in Europe, as he lived and worked in the UK for many years. 
A retrospective exhibition at Bonham's New Bond Street from Tuesday the 2nd to Friday the 12th of October aims to put that right. Assembled with the help and enthusiasm of Richard Lynn's family, the exhibition, Richard Lynn Selected Works from the Artist's Estate, spans the artist's career and includes works never before seen in public. You can find out more at bonhams.com. Welcome back. The British Ghanaian artist Larry Achampong is presenting one of the special projects at this year's 154 Fair. He joins me on the line now. So Larry, tell me, you've made a uh, new project for 154 and it seems to me that it's consistent with a lot of your work in the sense that it uses the personal to address much broader themes. Tell me more about it. Absolutely. So uh, the, the title of the, the, the special project is uh, No Place Like Home. And, um, and that's been supported by um, uh, my gallery that represent me, uh, Copperfield, London. And, um, and essentially, we, we had conversations around kind of bringing together uh, various elements of my practice that consider, I guess, ideas around um, home, a sense of belonging, um, uh, Britishness, and um, I guess the, the, the question of, of the other and, and the relevance of that even to today. Um, so we, you know, we, we, we considered a range of different uh, pieces that I've, that I've created over the years, including video work, um, uh, I guess, kind of sculptural components of, of, of work as well as uh, photography. And, and through that, there are a range of pieces, including the, uh, the Glyph series, which um, is, very, is very much um, the, the creation of the work derives very much from my experience of, uh, of seeing uh, gollywog type culture um, through uh, everyday products as a kid. So um, in my case, the, uh, the Robertson's gollywog on the, uh, the jam jars. Uh, yeah. This is something that I, I, I saw as a, as a kid at the, at the breakfast table, um, something that my mum couldn't quite relate and explain to me, uh, having you know come from Ghana. Um, and so there, there's a lot of this kind of, I guess, deconstructing of, of these ideas that kind of connects to, to, to racism that I think really still kind of, um, you know, haunt the fabric of society today. So, um, you know, the, the, the work, or should I say the project that, that we've, um, we, we've worked on has very much a, a kind of, uh, I guess, a domestic feel, but then a very um, kind of uh, outward looking um, feel to it at the same time of, of you know, what, what identity can mean within uh, the diaspora. Does does an art fair feel like a kind of rich territory to kind of do that? Because obviously it's a place where art is sold and yeah. there's a sort of uh, disconnect, if you like, between a lot of kind of creative practices and the idea of, of, of a saleable object or uh, a commercial exchange. Is, is, is that part of the reason that you're presenting quite a... Um, what seems to me to be quite a non-saleable <laughs> um, artwork. That's <laughs> a really, that's a really good question, Ben. And you know, I have to admit to you, you know, I've my I, I've I've not really had representation before. So you know, the my, my relationship with with uh, Copperfield London is is very early, although it's been going very well so far. And so I think yes, you know, to be to be presenting work in, in the, the the premise of a uh, of 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 an art fair is is a new situation for me. Although I've shown across you know many types of spaces, um, you know, I think you know a lot a lot of that is in in a way is kind of left to uh, you know the gallery to kind of handle in terms of selling. You know, I, I just produce what it is that I'm kind of responding to, and um, you know, I. I I, I've never kind of really produced anything to kind of think, okay, so how how's someone going to 
buy that or you know might they buy it later on um i really create uh the work that i do to kind of to open up conversation more than anything and um you know of course it's you know at the same time it's it's fortunate that you know there is interest you know since being with with copperfield um last year december uh you know some work has sold which is which is great because that helps my family um but uh no the, the for me the the ideas come first and and anything else of course that follows is 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 a bonus that being said i'm not kind of kind of saying that you know i i, I do what i do without kind of considering um you know money it's that that that's that always has to be a a, a big deal for me whatever project it is that i'm working on i'm interested in the way that you use archives because your the archives that you're using are uh multiple you're you're drawing on all sorts of material again personal but but also much more widely relating to african culture and also to british culture can you explain how you go about your research absolutely no and i think that you know all of those 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 points you raise are very relevant um now like i i i come from a working class background i grew up in bethnal green um and and of course in 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 the area that i grew up in um you know garage music was a was a really big thing and and of course grime music later on as well so you know i was surrounded by friends who are like making beats and so on for example you know people who are collecting vinyls you know on top of that my uncle um who who was still a dj used to collect and and bring vinyls over from um from ghana uh and my mum and father when they uh, traveled over from from Ghana in the 70s so I kind of inherited some of my my parents uh, high life uh, collection and, and high life music um, is, is is a sound that um, it, it predates jazz and even afrobeat uh, so afrobeat if you know that the sound in terms of the likes of Felakuti, Ibo Taylor and so on uh, was created by combining I guess elements of high life with jazz um, so the, the, for me, the archive is something that in a way is kind of partially, you know, uh, a, an inherited kind of situation. You know, I, like, I'm a massive like video game fan as well. So like, I, there are kind of, I guess, Easter eggs, if you will, within some of the works that I create that have gestures towards certain video games, whether it's, I don't know, Pac-Man or Metal Gear Solid, that kind of thing. So I'm really interested in, I guess, the interactions that I've had. And then again, the conversations that I'm having with people. So you know, like I make video works as well. And so when I'm kind of, um, when I'm working on research for like scripts, for monologues, I'll, I'll talk to people that I know have either similar experiences or, or quite different uh, experiences in relation to uh, some of the feelings I've, I've generated myself, just to kind of create, I guess, a, as much of a, a nuanced kind of outlook as, as possible. I, I recently interviewed uh, Godfrey Donko, another British Ghanaian artist, who said he felt a sense of liberation through actually working in Accra and and going to uh, explore themes relating to post-colonialism over over in Ghana have you mm. have you likewise made journeys to Ghana and seen their potential for new ways of working or new themes in the work yeah so um I personally I haven't traveled in 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 years but um uh years ago I where I had traveled when I was younger, I kind of, I came across um, these uh, Christian style kind of almost propaganda like posters, which actually are, are, are utilized as a, an artwork within 
um, the, the installation that I'll have at the art fair called the uh, Holy Cloud. Uh, so what, what you have basically uh, these uh, a range of clip art images that are amassed within a poster. They have um, quotes that are kind of grammatically a bit incorrect that are taken from the uh, the Bible and so on. And you have images of of the uh, the white Christ, as it were, um, which I've then kind of maybe uh, defaced or covered with this this uh, cloud face motif. Um, that that's that for me at the moment is probably the work that it, where where I've most directly kind of personally taken uh, from uh, uh, objects uh, within uh, the the uh, within Ghana. Um, and yeah, I think there's definitely kind of being able to have have that conversation that directly reaches into you know where where I come from um, certainly uh, feels it feels empowering it feels uh, very relevant it feels timely um, and and you know just really I think um, more than anything um, it just feels like the right thing to be to be doing like you know of course that there, there there is my British heritage in terms of growing up in London you know, learning certain colloquialisms, like in terms of, you know, from like Cockney slang to then kind of talking within uh, art specific contexts where, you know, you're using all these crazy words that are so exclusive, they kind of push people to the periphery. So, yeah, to be able to kind of have that, um, that connection of reaching into, you know, that aspect of, of my own heritage, um, be it quite historical or quite present, um, is, is, is quite a, uh, uh, is a powerful thing. You know that that's helped me to create works like the um, the, the Pan African flag for the Relic Travelers Alliance, which you know showed on top of the um, of, of Somerset House uh, last year when One Five Four was on, and then also you know uh, currently within the, uh, the the Free Sculpture Park as well. So um, yeah, I, I, you know it, it, I, I think what it does, what what I'm doing in the end is having a conversation that becomes a bit more uh, universal, if you will. Larry, thank you very much. No problem, Ben. Thank you. Now, next week, Bonhams will have its latest Africa Now auction of modern and contemporary African art. It was the first auction of its kind, launching in 2009. Giles Pepiat is Bonhams' director of modern and contemporary African art, and he joins me now. Giles, Bonhams was the first auction house to have a dedicated sale for contemporary African art. What precipitated that development it was really out of um two things one was the the perceived demand and in fact until you've tested the market you don't actually know if the demand's there but we're pretty sure there was a demand for this work the second thing was the the amount of good work that was out there and obviously you need both sides you need to have works you can sell and people wanting to buy those works so it was a bit of both but until we actually tipped our toes in the market, dipped our toes in the market, we, we had no clue as to whether it was going to be a success or not. And we did start these sales almost 10 years ago. And at that time, I will say the market was very different. It was, uh, the demand was not as strong. And certainly there was no market as there is now. I mean, we didn't know who to send a catalogue to. I mean, there were no collectors or anything like that. Well, certainly if they were collectors, they hadn't coalesced into a group that we could uh, send catalogues to and manage in the way that we can now. So it was a very different market. But it was it was the fact that we did think that there was going to be a strong market for this work and there was some very good work out there. 
Can you tell me who you're sending, I mean, not exact people, obviously, but what type of people you are now sending catalogues to? Who are the collectors for African art? Okay, so they're they're very varied. As with every um, collecting category, we have um, a constituency buyers in Africa, uh, and we have a constituency buyers in Europe and in North America, and those probably the three main collecting areas. Um, and we also have a large number of institutions that are looking to get into the market. Uh, it is certainly, as I said, a very fashionable market at the moment. So, no, it's something that uh, is the usual varied spread. I mean, obviously, each area tends to focus on different things. I will say that the collectors in North America tend to be more interested in the more contemporary end of the scale. The the buyers in Africa tend to be more interested in what I would call the modern uh, artists but no we, we send them all around the globe now one of the things that the institutions like the tate have done is try to sort of reconstruct modernism from within in a way by introducing modernisms from across the world mm. into what was a very narrow collection of european and north yeah. american art essentially uh, is, are you seeing that in collectors as well do you do you sense that there is a sort of retrospective or sort I think of so. i think you're right there is a certain amount, certain amount of sort of backfilling going on in people who've collected uh, modern art or modernism in whichever market they are most active, be it North America or uh, French art or British art. And they're seeing very good examples coming from Africa, which is obviously where we're focused, and they're acquiring those. But as you say, it's more the interest in modernism than perhaps the interest in African art, but they certainly see a parallel in the movements in both both areas. Obviously, with Africa being such an enormous continent, it's very it's very dangerous in a way to talk about Af- something being an African trend. But, uh, for instance, are the collectors emerging from the same places that the art is emerging from? Or are you getting a real disparity? Um, th- there is a little bit of a disparity. And as you say, it's very difficult to generalise. In Africa, you've got 54 countries. Um, but for us, I mean, I'll, I'll just tackle that one head on because we do get occasionally the odd criticism for collecting Africa together like that. I mean, for us, it's nothing more than allowing our collectors to know which catalogue to pull off the shelf. Um, If they are collecting work, be it from uh, Nigeria, Ghana, Kenya or Mozambique, they have to know where to come to get it. And certainly that's why putting them in our African Now sales allows them to do that. Um, You ask whether the, the collectors and the art come from the same countries or regions no, there is quite a bit of, of cross-border collecting uh, within Africa and obviously from outside. I mean, you have a lot of buyers. I mean, one of the strongest markets is is Nigeria. And there, they are not solely focused on Nigeria. Now, they are, the buyers there are buying works from Ghana, from West Africa. And uh, you have buyers in the States and they're buying across Africa. They, they don't really mind too much whether it's South Africa, Mozambique or Nigeria, it's the quality of the work that matters. But no, I think I think there is obviously a degree or a certain number of collectors that will only collect the work from their particular country. But there are just as many that are, don't bother with that. You, you mentioned that certain collectors are very interested in, in more contemporary work. How contemporary are we talking? Because, for instance, in Documenta, in the most recent documentary in Castle, there was a lot of... Um, a lot of work that was very much exploring a kind of post-object, I think they'd call it, mm. uh, kind of language, is the kind of work that you are selling in a way more um, conservative or traditional in format, at least? 
I would, yes. I mean, I think you're probably right there. I think that generally, um, and it's awful to generalise, but I'm going to, generally, Africa tends to have a more conservative outlook, both for collectors and for, for some, not all, but for some of the artists. And one looks at the works that, that, that we're selling, they are certainly, I think, more conservative in the way they're produced because, and we therefore put them in our sales because we know we can sell them and our job is to sell the work. And there's no point putting in a wonderful piece that might be incredibly uh, experimental or avant-garde if we're not going to be able to sell it. And that's the crucial thing. I mean, we're there to sell the pieces and we have to react to the market and the tastes in the market. And I would say that certainly the buyers from Africa do have, the collectors in Africa do have a more conservative taste. The buyers from uh, the rest of the world, I would say, is not much different from general contemporary art buyers. But no, I think I think it's not a unfair generalisation to draw. Is there, um, we've heard a lot about... Um, cross-collecting mm. in the context, for instance, of Freeze and Freeze Masters, yeah. that there are people buying historic work and contemporary work. Do you sense that there are people buying across African culture, across generations, centuries, in the field of African cultural objects? I mean, again, you can generalise. I mean, I think there are there are people, but how many? Not, not a huge amount. I mean, I think, you know, you have tri- collectors of, for example, tribal art, you know, ethnographic art, and there are one or two who will collect contemporary African art as well. But if you were to send the catalogue to the whole list of tribal art collectors, I'm afraid you wouldn't get a huge response um, because there's not many of them that are doing that. There's always one or two. And it's very nice to, to obviously have those people on board and have those people participating in the auctions. But in regard to contemporary art, you've obviously got a huge swathe of contemporary art collectors in North America. And yes, for us, in some ways, the, the the dream is to convert, you know, uh, let's say 10% of those into adding pieces of contemporary art from Africa into their collections. And that would be a wonderful thing. So we are looking to try to have that crossover. It's still, I wouldn't say, happening as strongly or uh, there's not as many collectors as we would like, but you've got to keep trying. In the Africa Now auctions, do you reflect the sort of diaspora? Because there's a lot of connections being made between African artists and those with African backgrounds living in the West. Is that something you can reflect in in the Africa Now projects? Um, Yes. I mean, we do include works from not all, but a few of the artists in the diaspora. I mean, again, I, I try not to get too hung up about, are they African, are they not, are they British? I mean, look at someone like, I don't know, Yinka Shonibari. I mean, he's a he's he's a British passport holder, he's British, and when he's referred to in his uh, catalogue entries, he's British, that's what they say, British-born, whenever he was. Um, but he is also very strongly Nigerian, and I think he would probably be e- equally offended to be told he's not Nigerian. So... We tend to include work by artists that we think the collectors that are looking in that category are going to be interested in. So it's more focusing on the collectors than perhaps the artist. And there's certain artists that are from the diaspora that we don't include. 
Is there a sense in which the fact that there's a growing collector base mm. for African art is having a positive effect on the scenes in Africa, i.e. Oh, yes. the artist communities? Yeah, no, I think it is. And I think it's, it's, it's a very positive thing for, for two or three reasons. I mean, certainly one of them is for the collectors and the galleries in Africa because they can now say, the galleries can cer- certainly say, to their collectors, look, this doesn't only have a value in Nigeria or only have a value in Kenya. You could take this to London and sell it. And it has a value there, which is quite a powerful message and a quite a powerful telling, uh, selling tool for them. I would also say for the artists, it, it's great to feel that, that they can sell their work in London. Now, we were talking earlier about the fact that whether we actually sell directly from artists, and, and, and we don't. We The auctions tend to be uh, a place where you sell work from the secondary market, i.e. the primary market is you know where someone's bought something from a gallery and then the secondary market is when they move it on. And, and that largely is what we do. But certainly there are one or two artists that are selling what I might call primary work on the secondary market. And for them, it's very useful to have that opportunity. As well as the volume of work, is the price of the work shifting upwards? Yes, it is. Uh, I would say not as fast as a lot of people would like. Um, you know, everyone wants things, all works, to be fetching twenty, thirty, fifty thousand pounds. There is an awful lot of work still being sold under ten thousand pounds, and probably an awful lot of work under five thousand pounds. And that is, in a way, one of the things that's holding the market back. I think, because for some collectors, they're very used to seeing works appreciating at a faster rate and so they look at the african market and say well it's all very well i mean this works you know three grand what'll it be worth in five years it's worth eight grand well that's not you know doing much for me so but in a way i think that's not a bad thing because we means we won't hopefully have the the people who are coming to speculate. I mean, there are and there have been markets that have been really ruined by speculators, people coming in solely to acquire work for a year, 18 months and push it back on the market. And that's not enormously healthy. It's much better to have people who are collecting work for the longer term to hold it for 10, 15 years. So the the lack of the, the very strong uh, growth in some ways is a good thing, gives more stability to the market. But no, I mean, I think... The highest price for um, a piece of modern contemporary African art is a, we sold a work by Benin Wamui for 1.2 million this year, which was was wonderful. I mean, it was great to have that. It was a when I say it was a one-off. I mean, it would be lovely to happen again, but I think one has to be realistic and say it was a masterpiece, one of his best works. You know, it does help the market, but we need more of those, and we need more of those spikes. So, tell us about a couple of highlights in the African Now sale this year. Um, well, we've got a very strong sale this year, and I think there are one or two strong areas. We've got a, a wonderful um, collection of Ghanaian modern contemporary art from the collection of Seth Day, who was a wealthy businessman in Ghana. And it's it's going to be really interesting, that, because it's the first time a single-owner collection of Ghanaian art has come to the market and been sold in uh, on the international market. So... I think that's going to go well. You can never be sure, but you're certainly hopeful. And I certainly think that's going to go well. Um, we've got the usual um, collection of works by the Nigerian artist, Benin Wamu, who is very much the lodestar. I mean, he is leading that market. And as I mentioned earlier, we sold a picture by him for over a million pounds 
uh, earlier this year. And then I think one of the works that I'm keenest on is actually on the front cover. It's by a Malian artist called Konate. And it's a wonderful hanging tapestry, uh, really exquisite golden colours. And I think it's a beautiful thing. It's not expensive. I think it's in about thirty to forty thousand pounds. But no, we've got a great sale and I'm I'm very confident it's going to do well. Giles, thank you very much. Thank you. The Africa Now auction takes place at Bonhams in London on the 4th of October. And that's it for this week. Thanks to all our guests and to you for listening. Do subscribe to the podcast if you don't already and follow us on Twitter at Tan Audio, Facebook at The Art Newspaper and Instagram at theartnewspaper.official. Next week it's a Freeze Week special, including an interview with the artist Doris Salcedo, among much else. See you then. The Art Newspaper podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams. Find what defines you at bonhams.com. <laughs>